Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Joanna Rees writes sweeping romantic adventures that combine mystery, romance, and glamorous international settings. There's a hint of Jackie Collins or Shirley Conran in her heroines, girls like Vita in her The Hidden Wife, book two in her latest historical fiction series. Vita's story is one of creativity and courage, living in the turbulent and freeing times of 1920s Paris and London and 1930s Hollywood, coming up next. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and Joanna talks about the dream start she got in writing with an early book that went to the top of the bestseller charts and was made into a movie, and the ups and downs that life has brought since, including facing down breast cancer and writing about it in a novel, a funny novel, which will be out next year. But before we get to Joanna, just a reminder, the show notes for this episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Joanna's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Joanna. Hello there, Joanna, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, Jenny, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be on and uh, I love the podcast. I'm very excited to have a chat today across the other side of the world. I'm in a, I'm in slightly stormy Brighton in the UK. Yes, it's lovely. Beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction? And if so, was there a catalyst for it? Well, yeah. I mean, I always was a writer. Mainly, I was a talker, actually. It's by accident that I became a writer. I would have actually probably been better off doing what you're doing, a podcast or radio. But anyway, when I was little, I was a terrible chatterbox. And I had an older sister, who I'm very close to, who was a real bookworm. She used to love reading books. And my mother used to take us to London. We lived in Essex, which is a, about 30 miles away from London. But my grandmother lived in London. I was always, I always loved London. We used to go and see her at the weekend in the car. And I used to always want to chat and my sister wanted to read. And so my mother gave me a book and said, just write it down, write everything down. So thus followed this ridiculous long diary entry of we're at the traffic lights. Oh, no, they just changed. Oh, me trying to record the journey as we went. But my dear grandmother, Nana, in London would patiently sit down and, and listen to some of the stuff that I'd read, that I'd written. And, and so I kind of, and that was my first inkling that I could entertain people with my writing. So skip forward, I did a, I went through school and I went to university, I did an English and drama degree and I always wanted to be a novelist. I always had this kind of vision that I would be rolling up to Harrods in a great white like stretch limo and in my beautiful trouser suit signing for my fans. You know, I had this ridiculous fantasies about it. Anyway, I got then kind of sucked into real life and, you know, waitressing and terrible jobs and eventually I got this job as a copywriter um, for an agency so you know you know cereal packets you know when you kind yes, of have yes. cereal in the morning and you have like promotions on the back so we had sugar puffs and I was writing honey monsters soccer pop-ups right and the terms and conditions and I was suddenly like I don't want to be doing this I want to be writing a novel why am I at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night on a Friday night in the office still trying to close this all down and it really wasn't what I wanted to do so I had this really epiphany moment at 25 and I thought if I don't write a novel, I never will. So jacked in my job, dumped my boyfriend, sold the car, got a job as a waitress and a tiny little computer and wrote my first novel. And that was that. Fantastic. Now, you've got a wonderful story on your website about that decision, that it was your following your dream decision. And it was a pretty amazingly courageous thing to do at 25. But it also opened another doorway in your life that's had long term consequences, didn't it? Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I always you know, at that point in time, I was kind of mid 20s in London. And at, at that time, it was kind of the mid 90s. And it was just so much fun in London. I had a little flat on Portobello Road and I was having a great time and I was loving writing my novel but I was kind of terminally single well you know 
there were lots of boyfriends around, but nothing really serious. And I kind of thought, well, where's my, where is my prince? Where is the guy? And I kind of thought, if I follow my dream to write, I will definitely, definitely find the man of my dreams. And I was invited to go to write um, for a web... This is how long ago it is, Jenny. So we were invited to go for an interview for a website. What was a website? We had no idea what a website was. (laughs) Anyway, so we were going to be interviewed for the Guardian website about first-time novelists. And I was going with Emlyn, who was my agent's assistant, who I kind of met briefly in Curtis Brown when I first got my book deal. And so we went and met this this pub and I it was ironically called the front page and I could have thought god he's nice and then he was going out with somebody and it didn't you know it was not a romantic thing but we were both very we were both in the same boat we both had our first novels published and we were writing our second novels whilst working and trying to keep everything afloat Anyway, we became friends. So he became sort of a confidant because we were in totally different social swims. And we would go out and kind of, you know, chat about our lives and what we were doing, how hard writing was and all the various people that we were kind of seeing and blah, blah, blah. And we were totally at loggerheads about how to deal with things. So he would say, that guy's never going to call you. And I was like, oh my God, you cannot behave like this in the office. (laughs) So we became confidants. And one night we got very drunk and he said, you know what? We should write this down. This is really funny. And I went, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Anyway, I woke up the next morning with a shocking hangover and Emily rang me from the office. And it was like one of those moments where you say yes and it changes the whole course of your life. Because he rang me and he said, do you remember what we were talking about last night? And I went, Oh God, what have I, <laughs> what did I say? Oh, he said, you know, about us writing a novel together. And I, he went, do you want to do it? And I went, yes, yes, I really do. So he then went away and wrote this first chapter, taking all his experience and all of his mates' experience and wrote this kind of Jack the Lad guy called Jack and took it up to the cliffhanger moment where he turns around and sees this girl in a nightclub and then handed me the book at that point. I said, right, over to you. You write it now. And so I wrote then the chapter of Amy. And so we had no idea how it was going to work. But when we put the two chapters together, we knew we had comedy gold. And we gave it to the agents and the agents went nuts. And there was a massive book auction. And then suddenly we were thrown together on the front pages, having had this kind of massive book deal. And my friends were like, who's Emlyn? What What's going on? And that was that. And then we had this, and then we wrote together. For We wrote Come Together, together. And that's how we got together. Talking of the dog, here he comes. Hello, Ziggy Dog. Uh, so yes, so that was, that's how that happened. And uh, yeah, and we got together. And that became a film as well, didn't it? Yeah, it was made into a working title film and it was published in 26 languages. So we became very successful on the back of it and we were writing together, but we had two book contracts. So we wrote Come Together and Come Again. We went abroad all the way. I mean, when we look back on it now, it's hilarious because, you know, we were very famous and and it was just a great laugh. And we had, we, I mean, we thought every book was going to be like that because we were just on in all the papers and on all the telly. And our children now embarrass us terribly by by finding old YouTube clips of us on 90s television programmes. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> funny. So, yeah, so that's how we got together. And it's, you know, we had this very Victorian relationship because we were writing together. We were being very kind of strict about the whole thing. And, yeah, it was magical. It was a really brilliant way of getting together. So when did it turn from being a working writing partnership into a romance and a marriage? Well, we were writing this kind of warts and all book about 20-something life. So it was about this couple who meet, they get on really well, they get drunk, they jump into bed together, and then they have to kind of deal with the consequences, the fallout of kind of the fact that they actually really like each other. Whereas for us, we were very Victorian. So we were kind of, it was like a novel, it was like an old-fashioned like romance of letters in a way because Emin would write a chapter and then give it to me and then I'd be like you can't do that to my character I'd roll up my sleeves and go right I'm gonna get you back (laughs) and I would write the chapter back and so we had this kind of correspondence going on we'd see each other a lot and I would say is that you did you do that did I you know what happened and eventually we we landed up being in a situation where we cut it was near very near the end of the book and I said to Emin are we gonna we're going to talk about this. And he said, what do you mean? Talk about what? And I said, talk about this, you know, this between us. And he went, absolutely not. And left the restaurant. <laughs> I was like, 
oh, that didn't really go to plan. Anyway, he came back a few minutes later and he went, there are 10 really good reasons why we can't get together. And I stood up and kissed him and that was that. Bagged and tagged <laughs> from that moment on. <laughs> no, but then it was, and then we were kind of, we'd fallen in love, you see. And then we had to sort out ourselves to the publishers. But then it became, and then we were kind of, that became sort of part of the story of how the book was promoted, that we were together. But it was really good fun. I mean, we were, we were having such a laugh. And uh, yeah, we were very, very lucky. So that's, and then, you know, it's a really, un, unlike the, the fiction that we wrote, actually falling in love the old fashioned way, when you actually get to know somebody really, really well and, they, and you fall in love with their head rather than everything else, that's, that's the way to do it, turns that's out. That's a wonderful line. Did, did, have you ever got to use it in a book? There's 10 reasons we shouldn't be falling in love? Not yet. One day. <laughs> <laughs> one day yeah no there's been there's been lots of there's been lots of it is it's funny because at the time we were very much writing about our own experiences that we'd been but it, but then it became then we were starting to write books that were romantic comedies but they also had sort of darker elements and Emlyn's a thriller writer so he's always trying to get a body under the basement <laughs> trying to get it's like there's always a body under the patio or something it's just like oh for goodness sake <laughs> he really wanted to have this kind of darker element in it which was fun but also kind of we didn't really want to plunder our lives for the fiction that we were writing because we were you know we could have and we were offered the chance of kind of carrying on with Jack and Amy and writing Jack and Amy have a baby and all the friends and the moving out of London and all that stuff and it felt too too close to home and too raw so we didn't yes. do that yes. so we kind yes. of we wrote seven novels together and then we kind of decided to go in sort of slightly separate directions because I've always wanted to be Jackie Collins you see so I wanted to write this big I wrote this big book called uh Platinum which is um which was three women taking revenge on a kind of really nasty Russian oligarch and it was so much fun to write this big book big plot and I've and I've always liked I'm a bit of a magpie Jenny I like I like a bit of thriller and I like a bit of intrigue and I like a bit of romance. I don't, you know, so I kind of wanted to expand my writing, not just writing contemporary stuff. So, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what happened. Yeah. So that's a nice um, way that we can move on to talking about how your writing has evolved because the most recent books that you've published are historical fiction in a series called A Stitch in Time. You've got two of them out so far and the third one's coming soon. And they're very much set in England and in France and, and finally moved to Hollywood in the 20s and 30s. So talk to us about A Stitch in Time. Oh, do you know... Just, I wanted to channel my inner flapper girl. <laughs> like, like, I love musicals. I, you know, I, lo I love going to the theatre, you know, 42nd Street, all those big musicals. I've always loved a kind of big, spectacular uh, musical. And I've always loved that kind of period of the 1920s. I remember watching Midnight in Paris, the Woody, Woody Allen film. But before that, you know, there was Bugsy Malone and all those kind of stories that kind of evolved this era and actually when I looked into it the 20s the very late 20s were a very interesting time for women because before uh they were kind of a very liberating time women were kind of doing all sorts of wonderful things but it's also this time of jazz and music and under this this uh, on the surface of it everything is kind of quite genteel but there's this kind of real current of youth and fun and exuberance and I really wanted to kind of write about that so the first one is called The Runaway Daughter and it's about our girl Anna Casey and she had Anna Darton and she runs away from the Darton mill because she thinks she's killed her brother Clement and he's an he's really evil he's been so much fun to write he's such a baddie anyway she runs away on a steam train and she arrives in London penniless, clueless, scared, then ill, then really worried about what she's going to do. And she gets scooped up by lapsed debutante American Nancy, who mistakes her for someone else and whisks her off to an audition at the Zip Club, which is, I've made up, but it's very much based on a club that's by kind of, it's right in the middle of the it's by Trafalgar Square, so it's it's right in the middle of London. And it's this kind of under underground, kind of seedy, late night, 
review kind of place run by this terrible guy called Jack Connolly. And uh, there's a group of dancers there. And my and on the way, my Nancy renames Anna Vita. She says, I'm going to call you Vita. That I want because she she likes Vita Sackville West. So she says, I'm going to call you Vita. So Vita Casey is born. And so she Anna completely reinvents herself and becomes this kind of flapper girl and falls in with Nancy and this crowd. And she's hiding her identity the whole time and learning as she goes along and, you know, winging it, basically. So she's terribly scared because she's going to be found out for being an imposter. But she has this brilliant time. And, and she falls in with Percy, who does all the costumes on the side. He's a West End costumer, but he kind of does all the dancing girls' costumes. And she she's quite well endowed herself you know she's got quite a bust and which is not fashionable at that time so she wants to wear create a bra that she can move in and thus she sort of invents this bra and this underwear line called top drawer underwear and the girls kind of all help her and then she gets a she gets into the the shops with it and it's a sort of underwear it's the sort of story of the birth of an underwear past. so she's really creative and she finds her creativity but her past is catching up with her so in the background rumbling on is this kind of whole thing where she's going to get found out and caught and eventually I won't tell you what happens because I'm not going to give the plot away but she has to run away to Paris so the second one is in Paris and it's called um uh, The Hidden Wife so she's in Paris now which is very exciting and oh that was fun to write we went on a family family uh mission to go there and have a real look look around because there's quite a lot of 1920s Paris that is still there you know in in Paris all the old buildings are there with the old restaurants and stuff a very interesting thing happened because I wanted Vita to be working for a fashion designer to learn fashion and I didn't want it to be Coco Chanel because everybody knows Coco Chanel and and she was around at that time in Paris. Anyway, I was looking it up and I found a very old Vogue article from 1928 featuring this woman called Jenny Sacadote, who was a big um, designer at the time. And she had offices, purpose-built offices on the Champs-Élysées and she dressed everyone. She dressed the Queen of Japan and Fred Astaire's mother and sister and she had all these, Mary Pickford, she had all these celebrities coming to her office. Anyway, there was a website still of Jenny Sacadote's wife and I kind of emailed her. So I emailed. I said, this is a bit of a strange one, but I am an author from England and I would like to use Jenny Sacadote in my book. Is there any could you tell me some more information? And I got this amazing email back from Anne, who runs uh, Jenny Sackett. Anyway, she told me this fantastic story. And this was really fun for research. And quite a lot of it went in the book. But Jenny Sackett was born in the late 1800s in a very small town in the Dordogne in France. And she was very bright, but she didn't never knew her father. So her mother was an only, you know, she was an only child. So there was a bit of a stigma attached to it at the time where she lived. But she was very, very, very bright. And she became a professor of, like a school professor, but a professor of languages. She was actually quite, quite highly qualified. And about the age of 30, she thought, I don't want to do this. I want to be in fashion. So bless her. She went to Paris, set up her own fashion house which became so successful that she le- landed up going to the Champs-Élysées and she was a massive workaholic but she was quite a celebrity in her day and but then the war came and she was quite old by that point she was kind of in the 40s she was kind of in her 70s and she didn't have any descendants and so the whole brand kind of disintegrated and that was it it was kind of gone and then a hundred years later this lovely woman, Anne, who was herself doing kind of marketing stuff at the age of 30, went, I want to be in fashion. And she'd always knew, known about Jenny Sacadote because her dad had come from the same little village and there's Dordogne. So she'd known about this local celebrity made good. Anyway, she went and did a bit of research and she found all of these amazing drawings that Jenny had done in the 20s because she was the first woman to, she dressed the first She made the first uniforms. She was actually the one who invented the little black dress. She did all these incredible dancing, amazing costumes and beautiful dresses. And she's revamped the brand. So she now makes these 1920s 
dresses that Jenny Sackadote designed for a modern audience. So I had to buy myself a couture dress, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) I bought a flapper girl dress, which features in the book, which was very exciting. So yeah, so I have Vita going to work for her. And that's really fun. And now I'm nearly finished The Sister Returns, which is proving quite tricksy to to pull all together at the end. It's very easy puffing life into a book, but kind of getting it all in at the end is quite difficult. But um, that is set in New York in 1929 and in Hollywood in 1930. So now I'm looking at all the beautiful costumes in Hollywood and all those big sets and we're on the MGM lot and it's just so much fun. So it's wonderful. So it's it's just really an excuse to set books in the periods that I really love to go and travel to. (laughs) The Hidden Wife, for people who haven't read it yet, finishes on with her ordering a liner to go to America, doesn't it? So it's kind of like the door is really open for this next exciting chapter in her life at the end of The Hidden Wife. So it's really nicely set up for the next stage. Yeah, I love, and it's, you know, at each one I tried to write, so I've never tried a trilogy before. You know, I've written loads and loads of books, but it's quite, and it's quite fun writing a trilogy because you know your characters. So then you can have real fun with it. And also there's, certain constraints because they can only do so much and you know you know as a reader what you want to happen so you have to make it as juicy as you can and tease the reader and uh, so it's been quite fun in this book to kind of pull the same trick really you have to do the same thing over and over again because if people if people really like the book then they want the same sort of thing but different so you have to keep doing that so that's been mm. quite fun to mm. try and try and do that but I'm, I've been loving writing them yeah you you mentioned this sort of the big expansive book. Shirley Conran was another one of the authors that did that sort of book. And I think you mentioned in your website that you used to be an admirer of her. And of course, the male version of that is probably Jeffrey Archer. And yeah, um, yeah. I was just mentioning to you before we started that I've been listening to one of your books on CD in the last few days, A Twist of Fate. And I was partly drawn to it because years and years ago I read one of Geoffrey Archer's early books, Cain and Abel, which is about twins that get separated at birth and one has a very wealthy and lucky life and the other has to really do the hard grind. And A Twist of Fate has got a similar sort of pattern with two babies who are separated and have very different lives, but then they, they come together and they weave in. And I wondered when I started listening to it whether... You were aware of the Jeffrey Archer book and had been tempted to try and do something similar, or whether it was just um, coincidence. Oh no, abs- I'm an absolutely huge fan of Cain and Abel. It's one of my very first, very influential books. And interestingly, about when it when when a twist of fate, fate came in, I'll tell you a funny story. So I met Jeffrey Archer when I was in a restaurant in London. And I was waiting for a friend of mine who's a theatre director and I bought her a copy of the book. And when I was waiting, I met this guy at the bar and he he said, oh, I'm, we, we were just chatting. And he was sort of an old guy. And he said, oh, I'm, uh, he said, I'm training to be an auctioneer. And I said, oh, that's really funny. I said, you know, I, I've only ever been to one auction. We were talking about charity auctions. And I told the story about when I was working, temping, when I was trying to write a book about how I've been landed up organising a benefit for Mike Atherton, the cricketer, the English cricketer. And the girl who was I was working for was his friend. And so she was organising this benefit. And so there was this big black tie do at Grosvenor House Hotel. And I was, I mean, it must have been about 26 or something. Had clueless. Anyway, so I'm on the table with all the English cricketers and from the English cricket team. And there is a celebrity auction, which Geoffrey Archer is running. And he and he starts this auction, and I'm, I've had a few glasses of champagne, Jenny, I won't lie. <laughs> so then, so then they start this auction, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll do this. Anyway, so I landed up bidding on this signed rugby shirt, England players rugby shirt, and eventually Freddie Flintoff, bless him, saved me because I was about to be lumbered with like a two grand bill um which I couldn't afford to all. I had no not two pennies to rub together anyway so and I remember this charity auction very well anyway I'm talking to this guy at the bar about this event when in through the restaurant door walks Mike Atherton and Jeffrey Archer the guy turns around to me and goes oh my god 
that's so strange. That is a twist of fate, right? And I went, this is even weirder. This is my book, A Twist of Fate, which is based on one of Jeffrey Archer's books. Anyway, so the guy came over, this poor guy was, you know, he was a friend of Jeffrey Archer's and was landed up, was taking over from him at this charity thing. So we ended up having this hilarious conversation with this guy and I looking at each other going, this is so strange. We were literally just talking about these two very people and they have just walked into the into the restaurant. And then I talked to Jeffrey about my book and I said, um, I said, well, and this is it. This is the twist of fate. And he, and he said, well, what's it about? And I said, well, it's a little bit like Cain and Abel. And he went, well, that's a very good place to stop. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, I'm very much aware of it. And I didn't have them as twins. I, you know, I had them as sisters. But I loved that idea of two, two women not knowing who each other are and this sister thing and having and not realising that they're sisters. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always been interested in talk, in writing about kind of sisterhood and, well, female friendship predominantly, but I like the idea of, I'm very close to my sister, so that sister relationship and not realising that your sisters was kind of a really great one to, to play with. Yes. Tell me, I, I was thinking about it afterwards because I did assume at the beginning that they were twins you might not have ever said it and I wondered afterwards I didn't go back to the first um cd once I'd finished listening to it in fact I think I've still got it here to be honest but I did have the impression at the beginning that they were twins and then of course later on I realized I, I learned that they weren't exactly twins and then I thought oh, I wonder if she's been really clever and just left readers to conclude erroneously that they were twins I didn't I mean I wanted them to be very close in age, so they might as well have been twins because they yeah. they were they had they had to have had the sort of same start. I didn't I didn't want to make them in my mind. I didn't want to make them actual twins because I thought that might add kind of you have expectations about twins and kind of a telepathy yes. of twins yes. that you yeah. that yeah. in literature there's sort of some twin baggage that comes yes. when you write yes. twins. Yeah. And I didn't really want to explore that. That wasn't that wasn't the point. I thought that that was and I did kind of think about that but it kind of made it a bit distracting because as a reader if it's a twin I don't know there's a there's a different kind of vibe to it somehow so I wanted to make them very close in age but not actual twins if you see what I mean because I wanted yes. it to be a kind of more of a pure sister thing. So but yeah that's why I started and it's and it is very I mean I didn't but also, on the other hand, I didn't want to kind of really uh, set it so much apart that they were so much, because they're really close in age, but I didn't want to have it too spelled out because I kind of think that wasn't also, that wasn't the point. The point is that these two babies are separated at birth. And I didn't, so I didn't make them twins and I kind of deliberately left it so that people could kind of either assume that or not, depending on how they wanted to read it. Yes, yes. Yes, I must say that it, it does, it, it covers a great deal of ground. The two women end up both with very exciting careers and you have the chance to take them to some wonderful places and wonderful experiences. So it's a, it's a, it is really one of those big international books that we've I been know. talking about. I love that, you see, because I sit, in my, sit here in my study, in my gym jam bottoms or my jogging bottoms. <laughs> And I go to all these amazing places in my head. So no, it's it's a great it's a great one for kind of having all those kind of locations. I love that, and I love that in books as well. I mean, it's quite nice to write different types of stuff. So I've written kind of contemporary stuff, but it's also nice to write stuff that's historical. It's nice to write stuff that's kind of got loads of locations in because if you've got if you, I quite like doing quite big broad brush strokes of the canvas and if you do that you can really liberate yourself to kind of set scenes in different places and that's what platinum really taught me is that I had these three women and I had three locations and actually what's brilliant about that is that you could you always can find a scene somewhere fabulous to write the scene so that's yeah so that's that's it gives you quite a lot of inspiration and there's quite a lot of places that I've been to in my books that I really want to go to myself and I've travelled quite a lot, but there's quite a lot of places that I'd really, I'd love to go to. Yes. Look, changing the tempo a little bit, you do also write under the name of Josie Lloyd. Yeah. And you've got a book coming out next year, which sounds like it very definitely is a change of pace from what we've been talking about. It's called 
the Cancer Ladies Running Club. Now, it's not yeah. out yet, so I don't know anything more about it than the title, but that alone tells you that it's going to be perhaps a little bit more serious and, and thoughtful and not quite a sort of escapist. Tell us a little bit about that book. Okay, so that this book has come about because in, um, in 2017, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. After a routine scan, I was called up for a routine scan and bingo they found it and it was a terrible shock you know I was really stunned and shocked and I landed up having a mastectomy and then chemotherapy and radiotherapy and it was kind of quite a bolt out of the blue in the Shockton system and but I realized very clearly very quickly because I've got three girls and because I'm very much in love with my life I was just like well this isn't going to beat me you know this is not the worst thing that happened could happen it's a bummer but I'm going to get through it and help came in an unexpected form so one of the mums at the school gate rolls she said well you know what you really need to keep fit whilst you're having all your treatment and my instinct Jenny was just to get into bed and pull the duvet over my head I was like what keeping fit what now and she was like, and I've always been a kind of runner you know reluctant runner but um, I have done a marathon before and I do run a bit and she said no come and join my running group she said it's very important and in Australia for example they're building gyms next to oncology departments because they've shown the link between exercise and health can make a massive impact on your uh, treatment outcomes. Anyway, so I landed up going to the seafront in Brighton where I live and I met this group of girls who were all going through cancer treatment at various stages. Most of them had finished. One of them, Jane, was just ahead of me. And at first it was like being a new, like a heavily pregnant woman going to meet new mothers because they gave me all the gory stories of what was going to happen. I was like, oh, this is really scary. But I loved their kind of gallows humour about the whole thing, because as soon as you get a cancer diagnosis, everybody is then really serious and treats you really seriously. And you're not allowed to have a sense of humour, and you're not allowed to joke about it or or be irreverent about it. And I found kind of my tribe with, this, with these women, because we would laugh about it and how people couldn't say cancer. They'd go, oh, she's got you know, and whisper yeah. it so anyway, So we had all of this kind of camaraderie. And um and so a few weeks later I went down again and the local press was there and they said, Oh, it's so great you're running the Brighton Marathon 10K. I was like, What? And Ross <laughs> said, Oh, didn't I tell you this is a training group for the Brighton Marathon 10K? And I was like, You're kidding me. We're gonna do a 10K, I'm just you know, just about to start chemo. So I'd had a rock operation at this part. Anyway, so to cut a long story short, we did a bit of training. And so on a very bright April day, just before my third chemo session, we did the Brighton Marathon 10K. And it was just, I thought, well, I'm just going to give it a go and see how it goes. And I was running completely bald. It was so hot, took my cap off and I'm, I'm totally bald. And as I'm running, all these women come up to me and they tap me on the shoulder. So everybody's running for various charities. And a lot of women just tap me on the shoulder and go, keep going, I'm clear three years. Keep going, I'm clear 10 years. Keep going, I'm clear five years. And I had this amazing surge of love and support from all these women that were running with me. And then this one woman sought me out. She, she came up to me, she said she had this gorgeous mane of kind of long, glossy hair. She was really healthy, really fit. And she said, I had stage four cancer and they thought I was going to die. And she said, that was four years ago and I'm completely fine. And she said, keep going. And so I was like, yeah, all right then. So and, she, and off she ran and she was sort of much fitter than me and I was slogging around to get to the finish line. Anyway, on the last turn of the race, she had waited for me. She said, can you just stop a minute? I went after been waiting for you. And I said, what is it? She said, I want to tell you a story. She said, when I was going through my treatment, I was at my lowest ebb. I was sitting in a cafe across the road from the hospital. And this woman came up to me, complete stranger, came up to me and she said, listen, I know what you're going through. And she said, I've been there myself. I said, but I just want you to keep the faith and have hope that your life is going to be better than ever on the other side of this experience. And this woman in the cafe had taken off a little necklace, a little butterfly necklace, pendant necklace, and had given it to this runner, who then took off the same necklace, this necklace that I wear every day. It's like a little 
so like a little butterfly necklace, right? This little pet. And she said, this is a little butterfly of hope. And she said, I want you to have it. I've been wearing it every day for three years and I want you to have it. And I want you to know that your life is going to be better than ever, the other side of cancer. And that is what I'm giving you. And I didn't even know her name, Jenny. I gave her a massive hug. We had a few tears. It was quite emotional. And then off she went. And I kind of ran the rest of the race. I found the rest of my girls and we ran the rest of the race. And I was absolutely euphoric and also so moved by this experience. I thought, right, I need to, I need to write about this because I, I have to write this story. But I also want to make it fictional because there's so much that happens when you have cancer. Because life doesn't stop when you have cancer. You still, you're still a mum. You're still writing. You, you've still got a business. You've still got a marriage. You've still got friends. You've still got things to negotiate. You've got elderly parents. All of that. So I wanted to write all of that. So I wrote this book. Uh, there's a fiction book called The Cancer Ladies Running Club, but it's based very much on that experience. And so it was supposed to come out this year. Oh, and it got cancelled because of COVID. But anyway, so it's coming out in May. It's come out in Sweden so far. There's a few kind of foreign deals for it. So, yeah, so I'm very, very proud of it. And it's very close to my heart. And it's, you know, it's a contemporary fiction, but it's it's also, I wanted to write something that was positive about cancer because there's a lot of women like me who are not just surviving, but they're thriving the other side of cancer. And we don't, cancer in, in our popular culture is used very much as a kind of tear-jerkery kind of thing in, in films and in television programmes and certainly in literature, you know, somebody gets cancer and it's curtains, right? But mm. one mm. in two of us are going to get cancer in our lifetime and one in eight women get breast cancer. So not everybody dies. You know, you have to write, so this is a good news story and it's a positive story. And it's, you know, it tells it like it is, it's not shying away from the truth and it's a bit kind of gory in details in some of the detail but it's but it's truthful and it's hopeful and funny in places so it's a, it's a light-hearted book about cancer if you can have such a thing so there you are it's out in the world it sounds wonderful i can't wait to read it when it when it finally gets there that's yeah well, i hope you i hope you <laughs> Look, just moving on a little away from the actual, the, the, the specific books, talking a little bit more about your writing career, you mentioned, and, and your personal life, you mentioned that you're passionate about a type of yoga that I must admit I've oh, yeah. never heard before of before called Qigong. Is that how you Qigong, say it? Qigong, yeah, Qigong. Qigong I got into because when I got cancer, one of the things I realised, Jenny, to be quite honest, was that I had been busy for 30 years, happily so, but I've been really, really busy. I've been really busy running a so like very hectic social life, three kids, marriage, dog, house, working, books, writing. And at that, at no point had I really put my health or my needs at the top of my list. And I was very happy for my needs to sink to the bottom of my list because I'm very happy to look after everybody else. I'm kind of, it, it makes me very happy to look after my kids and my husband and my friends. But I realised that I hadn't really put my health first at all. And I was, and the thing that kind of had shocked me most about the cancer was that I hadn't, it kind of happened on my watch and I hadn't really noticed. I'd sort of noticed, but I hadn't, I hadn't really checked in enough with myself to actually know that something was really badly wrong and I hadn't stopped so that I so that to take note and so when I kind of when I had and I kind of thought well I really need something I don't want to do something that's bendy and stretchy and strainy when I've got all this scar tissue so I didn't want to do kind of like traditional yoga and I was still doing the running but I wanted something that had a kind of spiritual dimension to it that that would would really help me. And I found Qigong. Now, Qigong is really ancient. It's from China. It's kind of basically Chinese yoga. And like all Western yoga and like all yoga practices, it's the same deal. So it's slow, deep breathing and movement and your mind in combination is what relaxes you and is what centers you and what gets you. So it's a very slow, it's very, very easy it's slow meditative movement with breathing. And I do a, a little exercise routine every morning. 
and it just feels like I can connect to myself and connect to the universe through it and like anything the more you do it the more the more you get out of it so I mean and I really do recommend it for for anybody of any age and any kind of fitness it is just a brilliant entry level because I and I started it when I was actually you know still quite poorly from my treatment and from my operation and it was it was real it was really nourishing and nurturing and and I feel that if I do it every morning I get a chance to just really check in with myself and just make sure that I'm okay so mm. that's that's where it's come from but I really love it and it makes me very happy so it's yeah, lovely I do that are you still doing the running yes still doing the running I'm doing the 10k next year it got cancelled this year I mean, I am a bit of a reluctant runner, to be honest. I, I can't say that I love running. I love the feeling after running. But it's, it's when I ran the marathon, though, interestingly, I realised that running and writing are quite similar. So what I realised is that when you, when you run, it is all mental. So you can, it's, it's physical, obviously, because you have to be slightly fit enough to run. But you don't have to be that fit to run right um you can run quite slowly but the problem is the men the mental mentality of it and when I was running the marathon I suddenly thought oh I get this I get this This is the same as finishing a book you just never ever think you're going to do it and then you do it and then you can see the finishing line in sight and then you're like oh yeah yeah I can do it so so what the trick is that you have to run a bit and then just go right I'm just going to run to that bin and when I've got to the bin, I'm going to stop and I'm going to congratulate myself and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to put my feet up. And then you get to the bin and you go, I'm going to just run to the next bin. I'm just going to run to the next bin. And then and that's how I do it. So, you know, it's quite, it's quite easy once you get, once you, once you realise that it's mental, it's quite easy. And that's how you write your books too? Yeah, yeah. Although, interestingly, I have found this whole year and lockdown challenging more challenging than I thought because when it first when the first COVID thing hit hit here and everybody went into lockdown I was quite smug I was like well I've been doing this for 20 years darling I know what I'm doing but then what I realized was actually there's quite a world of difference between writing novels just with Emlyn in the house and having our own creative process and and having a and trying to write full time with three hungry teenagers in the house that's quite challenging <laughs> so um so yeah so so I might create a and I also realized that I for a long time I kind of thought god I wish I I wish I had more time to write I wish I wasn't so busy I wish I didn't have such you know because I always fill up my time with people I love people and I love seeing people I've got loads of friends and I, I I really love being around people but I also really like going to the theatre and I like going to the cinema. I like, I see a lot of comedy, a lot of live music and all of that sort of feeds into my creative process. And I didn't really realise how much that cultural thing and the people thing fed into my creativity because then I'm sort of stuck in my office looking at, you know, waiting for, for inspiration. And it's just not, it's not, my creative process has been really disrupted by this. So I haven't written as fast as I would normally write, but it's getting there, chipping away at it slowly but surely. That's great. Look, we, we, are, we must be coming to the end of our time together. We've been chatting away here madly. Turning to Joanna as reader, we do call this the joys of binge reading, and it is for people who are looking for the, their next great read. Tell us what you're reading at the moment and what you'd like to recommend as their next great read. Oh, well... So many things. I love reading. I mean, that's why I kind of became a writer because I love reading and I love the feeling. I mean, I get this when I'm writing, but I love, I think books are so special because you get that form of escapism from a book that you never really get from anything else. And then a book is a book is a very private thing. So, it, you know, it can go, go to go in the bath with you. It can go in bed with you in a way that nothing else really does. And I love, I've always got a book on the go, always. I always have done. And I, I'm a kind of avid reader. I'm not a terribly fast reader. So I really envy people who can read very fast. At the moment, I'm reading a, a book called The Strange, the Strange Adventures of H, which is a, 
I can't remember who the author is, but um, it's a very, it's a, it's a really interesting book. It's all set in the plague in the kind of Tudor ages. And it's about a girl, H, and she kind of goes to stay with her aunt in this family. And it's about her, her adventures going, going forward. And uh, that's quite interesting because it's kind of quite resonant with the whole kind of COVID thing that's going on. I really love Elizabeth Gilbert. She wrote Eat, Pray, Love, but she's written two wonderful books since that I've really enjoyed called The Signature of All Things, which is set in kind of America when America was first founded. And it's about Alma, who's a botanist, and she kind of, she starts recording. Uh, she's a big collector of books and she works for her father and that's really interesting but the one that I just read of hers which was her most recent book is called City of Girls and it's set in New York in 1940 and it's about a young girl who goes to stay with her crazy aunt who runs a theatre like a really shabby dilapidated theatre in New York and it's about these uh New York theatre folk and uh, they put on a show called City of Girls and it's just magic. It's just really great. So, yeah, so I like that. What else do I read? All sorts of things. I mean, what happens is Emlyn, I will read, Emlyn will read a book in bed. So he'll quite often read a thriller or something like this and he'll nudge me awake and he'll go, oh, listen to this bit. (laughs) And I'll go, oh, this this is a really good line. And then he'll finish the whole thing and then go, right, your turn, you read it. And I'm like, well, why am I going to read it now? Because you've told me all the best bits. So so <laughs> as well as reading my own stuff, I do get Emlyn's stuff by default as well. So, yes, there's quite, I mean, I do like, I do like a thriller. Um, I quite like all the sort of psychological thrillers that we've had going on. There's been, I'm, I'm really grateful good friends Lisa Jewell she writes brilliant books so uh The Family Upstairs is one of my favorites that I've I've read recently so yeah Rosamond Lupton there's all sorts of people that I read but I I read quite a lot of contemporary fiction but it's quite difficult when you're writing contemporary fiction you have to be careful I I have to read different types of genres to what I'm writing so I yes. can't read any historical fiction set when when I'm writing at the moment because you kind of pick up a voice you do, yeah. you do yeah. tend to mimic if you're not careful. Yeah. Look, looking back, you, I mean, you sound as if you've had a remarkably, like the career that, an ideal career that anybody would want. But if you were doing it all again, is there anything that you would change? No. I've had a really wonderful ride. I mean, I think the thing is, is that you have to, um, when you're a writer, what I've learned is that you have to write because you love writing. You can't write because you want to have the stretch limousine rolling up to Harrods. You know, one day maybe that will happen. <laughs> but that's not that's not why you write. You write because you love the process of writing. Because I have learned that it's all luck and timing. And some books fly and you you weren't expecting them to. Some books that you thought would be massive bestsellers just fall wither on the on the vine and die and you don't you just don't really have that much control over it over the publishing process and over timing and over sales and stuff and yes we'd all love to be more successful but I have I have had my moments of being really successful and they don't all they don't last you know you get it, it ebbs and flows and actually I like the bit where I'm just at my desk and writing because nobody's expecting anything of me. There's there's scary bits where, you know, you have to go to to deal with a new book or or you're waiting for affirmation from an agent or a publisher that they like your book. And that's kind of, that can be kind of challenging. And you know, I I think, you know, in another life, maybe what I probably would have done is is done an app where when you when you get the call <laughs> from Hollywood, <laughs> your phone goes mental. And uh <laughs> there's confetti or something because you know we're all waiting for the call but I think it's in a very very lovely way of earning a living and I've been incredibly lucky because I've been at home with Emlyn so we've had this lovely we've had this lovely life together you know walking the dog and hanging out in our home and being able to bring up our kids and I've been there at the school gates being able to pick up the kids although quite often I turn up the school gates crazy crazy kind of got book head and my friends will know (laughs) just don't talk to me because I'm right in the middle of a murder. (laughs) 
So yeah, no, it's, it's, and my children have learned, I mean, I've always dug them out of bed, no matter what time of, of day or night it is, when I've finished a book and I get them, the, the tradition is they type the end, all of them. So they get, one of them does, the little one does the space in the middle, she's not so little anymore. But um, anyway, so I always type, I always get them to type the end. And at the end of a book, I am always wrung out because if you're not, if you're not absolutely mentally and physically exhausted at the end of a book, you haven't really run the marathon. You haven't really done your job. And quite often I'm tear stained and I haven't washed for days. <laughs> I'm smelly and I'm sitting in my jogging bottoms in my study and they haven't been disturbing me. And eventually I go, right, this is it. Come and type the end. And then I always look at them and I go, please be accountants. Look what this is doing to your mother. Don't be writers. But of course they're all creative. So they want to write. <laughs> oh dear so what is next on your agenda for the next 12 months what are your projects well I'm writing I'm finishing off the sister returns and yes. so yes yeah, so we get so that's very exciting to see Vita and, and what go, what's going on with her and then I'm writing the second book I got a two book deal contract for Josie Lloyd and I'm writing a book called Love in the Death Cafe and when I first when I first got cancer, I went to a death cafe, which is a kind of movement that started off in the in the States. And it's not religious or anything. It's just, it's basically people started up this movement in order to talk about death because uh, quite often, until COVID came along, we, were, we as a society, we weren't talking about death at all. And people very much shied away from death. And we didn't have, we used to have death in the community and we would have die at home and people would lay out bodies and and actually we've taken we've medicalized death to an alarming degree there's very much a movement towards more of a natural death like you would have a natural birth and I met somebody who is an end-of-life doula so like you would have a midwife or a doula for for birth there are end-of-life doulas now training to sit with somebody when they're dying and to kind of sort out the family situation and sort out the family you know issues and and to make and to be really with the person who is dying and to make sure that they have a good death and having a good death is something that we don't really discuss but it's very important and it's actually very important for the family and it can actually be something very liberating and joyous and spiritual and wonderful and we don't really plan it and also we don't really talk about grief and so and actually I went to this death cafe and and like the Cancer Ladies Running Club, where a group of strangers come together, it was this group of strangers. And honestly, we laughed. It was it was funny and life-affirming and sad and interesting. And we had this very in-depth discussion on a, you know, Tuesday afternoon over cups of tea about death and about dying and about what happens and about who believes what. And I thought it'd be a very good basis for a novel. Anyway, so I started writing it. And then COVID hit. And so I had to stop writing it because it's very difficult to write a contemporary book about death when all people are talking about people not talking about death, when suddenly all everybody is talking about is death. So it's going to be, I'm going to restart that possibly in the new year and and see where we're up to with COVID because none of us really know whether it's a blip and we're just going to go back to normal or whether it's not a blip and it's going to be with us for ages. I mean, it's, it's affected. I know we've all been looking to you guys and, and how brilliantly you've done over there, but here it's terrible right now. It's, it's pretty bad. And there's a lot of fear around it and there's a lot of, you know, anxiety. And I think people are, are talking more and are thinking more about their death and about how it, how it happens and, and talking about death more. It's very it's very liberating once you do talk about death and it's very damaging if you don't talk about death. And I've got lots of friends whose parents have died and recently who didn't ever get to have that conversation. And um, my own mother died in five years ago uh, this month in um, 2015 and she had Parkinson's and she was bed bound for the last year of her life. And so she had a terrible time, bless her. And she, I had a great conversation with her about death actually. And I said to her, mum, you're not getting out of this bed. You know, the end is coming. Are you all right about dying? 
because if you if you're not we need to talk about it because I was really worried that she was scared and nobody's mentioning it to her and she's not mentioning it to us and she doesn't want to talk about it with us because she doesn't want to scare us which is what happens you have this sort of lack of communication and I said are you because I need to know are you scared about it and she said oh no she said I've got plenty of friends on the other side she said and there's Nana and the dog <laughs> I was like and it was actually so wonderful. We had this conversation, this sort of lighthearted conversation about her own death because she made me a lot less afraid. And also it was just really lovely that we talked about it and that I knew what she wanted. And so I think all of these things are quite important in the same way that we talk about cancer and we kind of, it needs a bit of debunking. I think this in fiction, I always think fiction stories are certainly for me, the best way of kind of getting my head around things. And I've always found fiction to be very informative in a way that non, I like reading non-fiction, but it's not, it's not my primary love. I always love the wisdom that comes from books. And so that's why I wrote the Cancer Ladies Running Club, because I didn't really feel that there was anything out there that was truthful and honest and could give a little bit of a, an insight into this, not for people who've had cancer, but for everybody else, you know, for Mm. everybody else who hasn't. Mm-hmm. And and in the same way, that's that's sort of what I want to do with Love in the Death Cafe to kind of create this kind of joyful book that looks at death. Mm. So yeah, so that's what I'm doing next. So that's good. that's going to be really fun. I must admit, I hadn't heard of the Death Cafe movement, so that's very interesting. Mm. Well, look it up. I mean, they have them all mm. over. The, they have them all over the world now. But it's basically mm. anybody, and it's not. There's no rules or anything. It's basically uh, the idea is that anybody can come together and chat about death and you and you just have it's not religiously affiliated in any way it's just uh it's just encouraging people just to sit down with people and just to have the conversation because mm. a lot of people live with an enormous amount of anxiety and fear about their own death or mm. death of their loved ones mm. and it's quite debilitating for a lot of people and actually as always talking about things make it makes a big difference mm. That's lovely. Look, you obviously have already said you're a real people person, but where can your readers find you online? And do you enjoy interacting with them? I do enjoy interacting with my readers. I'm not terribly good at the online stuff, to be honest. I mean, I mm-hmm. do I do, do it, but I find it quite uh, time consuming and you kind of get suckered in to it. And actually, I have such limited time for writing that I try to be writing at my desk writing and I have to turn the internet off and I have to turn my phone off with to give myself even the vaguest chance of being able to write because otherwise uh, I'm on I'm on everything basically I'm on Instagram at Josie Lloyd writer so I've been doing a little bit of Instagram recently and I am at I've got a blog that's mum writes books or you can find me at www.joannareesbooks.com or you can find me on Facebook. I've got Facebook pages for Josie Lloyd and Joanna Reese, And that's probably the easiest way of finding me. I've got Joanna Reese Books Facebook page. So if readers want to find me, I am there and can be contacted. And I love hearing from people. Honestly, it's it only takes it only takes one reader to contact you and say, I loved your book, to make the whole thing worthwhile. Because yeah. it's just to have being able to give that experience to somebody else makes it all absolutely brilliant. So I do love hearing from readers and I love, I love it that there are readers out there wanting stories and wanting, wanting to hear more. So yes. And I love, I love it that people like you kind of engage with authors and make, make a kind of world happen of in which we can all share and celebrate books. Joanna, look, thank you so much. I think we've gone way over time, but it's been absolutely fascinating to talk today. And you've got some great stories there. Just keep on going, as they say. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So lovely to talk to you. Okay, bye, my dear. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. 
seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.